Hello and welcome to the Library Cafe, a weekly program of table talk with scholars, artists, and librarians about research and the formation and circulation of knowledge. I'm Thomas Hill. Today I and my guests are going to be talking about three exhibitions on view that extend across the Frederick Thompson Memorial Library and the Francis Lehman Loeb Art Center here at Vassar College. The collective title of these exhibits is called Celebrating Dante at Vassar, and they are on view through December 4th of this year. Collecting Dante at Vassar has been assembled to commemorate the 700th anniversary of Dante Alighieri's death in 1321. With me are the individuals responsible for bringing this celebration into being. They are Ronald D. Patkus, Head of Special Collections and Associate Professor of History on the Frederick Weyerhaeuser Chair. Also with us is Simona Bandavali, Associate Professor on the Dante Antolini Chair and Chair of the Italian Department. Alberto Gelmi is also with us, a professor in the Italian Department who is actually teaching a Dante course at the moment and helped in the coordination of the opening celebrations. We have also with us a student of Italian at Vassar, Emma Iadanza, a senior who curated one of the exhibits in the library. And also with us is Nancy Bezea, professor of history. This is a return visit for Nancy on the show. And finally, we have Elizabeth Nograti, Andrew W. Mellon curator of academic programs at the Francis Lehman Loeb Art Center. And I should point out for our listeners at home that the works of art and books we'll be talking about today can be seen on a website that Ron has put together that contains images of all three exhibitions, as well as of the essays our guests today have composed for the celebration. You can find these on the program website at library-cafe.org, as well as on the Vassar Libraries and the Francis Lehman Loeb websites. If you go to the library-cafe.org website, you just have to click on the image of Dante there. So I wanted to start by congratulating all of you here on a fascinating group of exhibitions and on a very successful opening event last September 14th which was the actual anniversary of the poet's death with the opening program and the reception in the tent set up near Chicago Hall. It seems Dante is still able to pack them in here at Vassar, where the Class of 51 lecture room in the library had more people in it than I've ever seen for an event since we created that room in the library. So first question I'll put to the group, how is it that a 14th century Italian poet can draw such a crowd among undergraduates in particular? And perhaps I should put this question to Emma in particular, who is actually a student. So Emma, what is it about Dante that might appeal to undergraduates? For one, I think that students have been really excited to get out and go to events on campus after a year and a half of not being able to go anywhere or go to any lectures and especially ones in person are very exciting. However, I think that the draw of a 700th anniversary is a really exciting opportunity for students or anyone really, especially at a place like Vassar, which even though it already has a storied history of about 150 years as a college or in a country that has had about 250 or 300 years of history. Having a 700th anniversary is just so exciting and not something that we often get to be part of because we have not had that long to celebrate things. Mm. And Dante is a 
already such a famous and relevant historic figure. And I think that the way that we put this event together just really caught everyone's excitement. Yeah. Did you participate yourself in the readings at the beginning of the program? Yeah. I did. So, so that was a wonderful event. You know, students participated in the program and I was very struck and pleased that it included a segment where students from the Italian department recited aloud long passages from the Divine Comedy in Dante's own Italian. Recitation of the text, hearing the poetry spoken, seems to me to be a traditional way for Dante lovers and students of Italian in general to engage with that masterpiece. And so I'll put this question to Alberto because you coordinated this part of the program. Am I right about that, about the importance for students, not just of Dante, but of Italian in general, of hearing the text recited out loud or reciting the text out loud? Yeah, absolutely. That is part of a long-standing tradition that goes back to Boccaccio's time. So it's pretty much the same age as the celebration that we're having this year. Boccaccio was commissioned by the municipality of Florence to give public lectures to a non-specialist audience to explain the big masterpiece of Italian literature at that time. Mm. Unfortunately, he was not able to finish his job because he was already old and sick at that time. But he's his book is still there in his notes and his lectures, the ones that he was able to give are still available to this day and pretty much a, a fun read. And yes, Vasa was part of this tradition too. As a matter of fact, the project started early on in the spring with my predecessor, Professor Eugenio Giusti, and uh, of course the Italian department in general. And I met with the students later in the summer and they had already come up with the passages they, they felt particularly in love with. And I was simply helping them in reciting and seeing the thread that connected them. It was just connecting the dots that they mm. had found in the poems. We read from the beginning, from the end, and then we discussed love and politics, which are, mm. one could say, the two pillars of the comedy. Mm. It was a beautiful part of the program. Even for someone who doesn't understand the language and the Italian, it, it reads like music. I mean, it sounds like music when people recite. So, uh, and they yeah. did a wonderful job. So. I actually think that if you don't speak Italian, you get to enjoy the music, the music uh -huh. aspect of it. Because yeah. as if you speak Italian, of course, you're drawn into the meaning of the words, into mm -hmm. the complexity of the poetry. But just enjoying the music for a while. I, I can relate when I hear Shakespeare, when I... It's read out loud for me and I understand not all of it, but mm -hmm. uh, I can enjoy the, again, the musical aspect. So yeah. it's, uh... There is something about hearing Dante spoken that's just wonderful. So Simona, Vassar students have been reading Dante as part of the curriculum, which you write about in your catalog essay for a long time now. So can you talk a bit about the history of Dante in the Italian department here at Vassar? Certainly. Well, the history of the Italian department and the history of studying Dante at Vassar are closely intertwined, and they both date back to the early days of the college. Mm -hmm. um, Vassar, as um, you may know, was the first women's college in the country to introduce study of Italian language and literature. And Dante, and studying Italian meant reading Dante's works. So a Dante course was offered as early as 1867, I mm. discovered, and then it was offered regularly starting in 1896. So we're really going back to the first decades of Vassar's existence. And in addition to regular courses, students could attend special lectures, lectures that were offered by invited guests, historians, mm. and then literature professors from other American universities in the 
19th century and then in the 20th century even invited guests from Italy. Mm-hmm. Since the department was founded, the Italian department was founded in 1922, its curriculum regularly featured a course on, on the Divine Comedy. Uh, Dante was taught exclusively in Italian, at least until 1940, when the catalogue first mentions a course conducted in English based on translated texts. Uh, it was called Dante and His Times. It still had an option for students wishing to read it in Italian. And that format remained pretty much unchanged in subsequent decades. So a course in English opened to all students and then the option for Italian students to read the text in its original. The Italian department, as we know it, was shaped by Professor John Ahern, a Dante scholar himself, who was the chair from 1982 till 2006, and he was at the college until 2014. And he regularly taught the Commedia in this format both in English and in Italian. He taught it as a first-year writing seminar. He taught it as a senior seminar for Italian majors. So the study of Dante's works remains central to the Italian major and also continues to appeal to students at large, as we see even today with the course currently offered by Professor Gelmi. The first text I was assigned when I decided on a medieval curriculum as a graduate student at Columbia was John Ahern's essay. I think the title is Binding the Book, which is on Dante's Commedia. And talk about manuscripts in Dante. He was the scholar who really focused in on the material culture of the manuscript in the study of Dante, like nobody before him, nor since, I would guess. Yeah, Ron? The so, students uh, in the detectives course will be reading those articles in, uh-huh, in, yeah. uh, actually next week. <laughs> yeah. Oh, are they? well, that's great. So, okay. You know, it seems to me that Dante is very important for people who are learning Italian, perhaps because he helped shape the language as a vernacular, as Chaucer did for English. And he certainly helped legitimize it as a learned and poetic means of communication, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have to remember that it was a bold choice for him to write his masterpiece in Italian. Mm -hmm. And actually, some of his fellow poets and writers attacked him quite openly about this. He should have written in Latin because Latin was supposed to be Mm -hmm. the the correct language for such an endeavor. And not just that, I would say, you're right in saying that he shaped the language pretty much like Chaucer did for English, to the point that we still have expressions that have become part of everyday parlance, and they don't even sound erudite to an Italian ear. They're just part of everyday's conversation. Mm -hmm. And I believe that almost 80%, or even more than 80% of Dante's language is still present in today's Italian. Uh So there is pretty much a continuity. Uh, between that time and uh, the 21st century. Can you tell us, Simona, about the Dante pilgrimage of 1921? That's 100 years ago now, which I found to be a rather astonishing event and a real window into the way that student life, study, and the engagement of the outer world were intertwined at Vassar, even in those days, at that early date, you know, long before the Engage Pluralism program that we have now. Yeah, it surprised me as well when I discovered about this trip. The the so-called Dante pilgrimage was, in fact, I think the earliest instance of Vassar's organized study abroad in Italy. Uh Yeah, you could call it community-engaged learning or, or study abroad. And as far as I know, yeah, that was the first instance that had Vassar stamp on it. So, yeah, as I I wrote in my essay, a group of 40 students, students and faculty, in fact, from Vassar traveled to Italy in the summer of 1921. 
They were part of a larger group of 120 students and faculty from other American institutions, academic institutions. Uh, they visited uh, the major cities. They went to Genoa, Naples, Rome, Florence, Bologna, and then they paid tribute to Dante's tomb in Ravenna. Mm-hmm. And the, the plaque that they brought as a gift is still on display at the Dante Museum in Ravenna. And mm-hmm. Emma, who visited this summer, I guess, can testify that it's there. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh. And the trip is testament to Vasa students' interest in learning languages and engaging with the outside world, mm-hmm. going to the source, we say, right? Uh-huh, That's right. Vasa's motto. Mm-hmm. Simona, am I wrong? Or you mentioned that you were talking about this with our president and she was surprised herself because the timing was even braver than it sounds, right? Right, because, yeah, that's one thing, I, one detail I hadn't, paid attention to, I should have, I guess, writing about this this year. But President Bradley brought to my attention the fact that in 1921, the 1918 flu pandemic had just Uh just ended. Mm -hmm. And so they were particularly brave in undertaking such a a voyage in the summer of 21, you know, after the world had been in a pandemic. And so I guess we're also seeing, you know, parallels to, to today in, in that detail as well, which is not a small detail, in fact. But the other aspect that is interesting about that timing is also that students visiting Italy in 1921 saw Italy at a very peculiar time in history. It was just one year before the March on Rome and the beginning of the fascist regime. I would love to find out more. I haven't yet. I'd love to find some diaries or letters that give us some students' impression of their time there. I hope to to find something with further research because I'd be really interested in reading about their impressions of Italy. They encountered Italian university students in every city that they went. That was Mm -hmm. part of the purpose of the trip. And so it'd be interesting to hear the the perspective of, of students. There was so much going on at this time. There's a lot of political and social change happening, certainly in Europe after the First World War, apart from the pandemic. And our students and faculty are politicized and contributing to the suffrage movement, of course, just this time. And we just learned about that with the exhibition we had, Ambassador on the Vote, last year. And you mentioned, Simona, that the famous poet, abolitionist, and suffragist, uh, Julia Ward Howe, the woman who penned the lyrics to the Battle Hymn of the Republic, came to speak on Dante and Beatrice in the chapel at about this time? Yes. What I found out about it was that, in fact, I double-checked the date, and it was actually a few years earlier than I had initially thought. And this came to my attention because I discovered that during this visit, she was a guest of Maria Mitchell, and she was invited by Maria Mitchell to speak to the students about politics, I presume. That's what I discovered. And I don't have many more details about her talk. I know that it was titled Dante and Beatrice. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was given in the chapel on a Friday evening in 1887, in the mm-hmm. spring of 18, oh, 1887. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that she had previously given the same paper before the Concord School of Philosophy. Uh, but that's as far as I have discovered all. Interesting. It points out why it's important that we keep institutional history and and keep it alive in a sense and in front of us, not just behind us. So um, which both Ron and Elizabeth do and people like Nancy, our historians draw on all the time. There was for many years a very active Italian club on campus, yes, which had its own meeting room and main building. Is that true, Simona? Yeah, and it was founded shortly after that 
trip to Italy in 1921. When the department was founded in 1922, they also established a student club, which I read uh, had regular meetings, luncheons with invited Mm -hmm. speakers, and they had a regular room that they -hmm. occupied in Maine, which was decorated with a variety of gifts that professors or Mm -hmm. guests would bring to the students. And at one point, it featured an exhibit of the postcards that Professor Bruno Roselli, who was the founder of the Italian department, had in his possession, from which collection, which we still have, Uh we found the postcards of Domenico Mastroianni's works, which are now exhibited downstairs in the library. Uh It's one of the exhibits that are currently on and that Emma wrote about. So Emma, can you talk about the art exhibit in front of special collections, in front of the front doors of special collections downstairs in Thompson Library of the postcards illustrating the comedy that you curated and that are in our collection? Yeah, sure. I was told that we had these postcards, which are prints by Domenico Mastroianni, who was a sculptor who was Italian, but he was working in France during the end of the 19th century and early 20th century. And we have 17 postcards of these photo sculptures that he made after scenes from the Divine Comedy. And they're photo sculptures in that he would use a clay sort of plate and sculpt in it and then take a photo of the sculpture. So the final product would be the photo, not the sculpture, which he would then get rid of or rework to make another one which speaks a lot to the consumer culture of the late 19th and early 20th century and the rising interest in photography. And when I first looked at them, I actually thought they were prints, like engravings, not sculpture. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought they really reminded me a lot of the Duray, one of which we have on display. But no, they're sculptures, which is really interesting. And I have not been able to find a lot of information about him online, but my suspicion is that they were made around 1921 for the 600th anniversary of Dante's Uh death. And I also have a suspicion that they were picked up by Roselli when he and his students were in Italy in 1921. I don't have any proof, but that's just my suspicion. And then he left them here, I guess, um, when he later went on to do his other things. We have 17 of them. Originally, there was a set of 52 which you can see pictures of online. There were 52 cards, all different scenes from the Divine Comedy. Mm. However, they're not equally dispersed throughout the comedy. Inferno is much more heavily represented, and that's reflected in our collection too. We have 10 or so from Inferno, and then four or five from Purgatorio, and just two from Paradiso. Or actually just one, I think. But they're all really stunning and beautiful, and it's really cool that we have these postcards that are connected not only to the anniversary of Dante, but also Vassar's experience of the anniversary of Dante last time. It's a wonderful little exhibit. It's worth spending some time at. And you have actually a little brochure catalog for it, don't you? They put together, yes, it's, so, yeah. it's a little description of everything that I just said. <laughs> yeah, quite, quite beautiful. So Nancy, since your essay on the catalog is formed on the question that constitutes its title, why don't I just ask the question that is that title? What can the Divine Comedy teach us about late medieval history? Big question, I know, but you answered it in the catalog very nicely. So. <laughs> yeah, it's an important question. And one of the reasons that I like to teach it in class is that despite 
this being this incredible spiritual journey, right? A metaphorical journey, something that takes Dante to other worlds. There's a lot of reflection about his own world, about his own society, about people he knew, about common concerns, um, political, cultural, social, and religious, right? So you can really delve into a lot of these subjects. So some of the things that we look at, for instance, it helps us to understand the moment in time that he represents, how Dante is often seen as a transitional figure between the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, mm-hmm. that he has you know, one foot in the Middle Ages, one foot in the Renaissance. And you can see this, for instance, in his heavy use of classical antiquity. For instance, having Virgil as his guide is really an impressive and important choice. The notion that pagan writers could be moral guides for Christians at this time, despite the setback or the deficiency of not being a baptized Christian, which he tries to reckon with, right? He, he tries to explain and understand that. Uh, and I think there's a sadness about that too, that notion that in Christian doctrine, what is the place for people who are not Christians, right? Um, mm. what, what is what is their afterlife look like? But, you know, the, just the, the, the presence of all of these figures from antiquity, both real and mythical, is very vivid. So there's that aspect. Also, the way that he looks at the sins of his day mm-hmm. uh, is, is very instructive. The tales that we like to look at very closely is the, the story of Francesca and Paolo mm-hmm. in uh, Canto V of, of the Inferno. And Dante is taking on a very big and important issue of his time in you know, marital infidelity, that this is something that people, I think, thought a lot about in an era of arranged marriages. He himself was perhaps a product of an arranged marriage, was part of one. And there are a lot of people who are sympathetic to the notion of love outside of marriage, right? Mm -hmm. Courtly love was very popular. Courtly romances were very popular. But he positions this in a very interesting way. He presents a pretty direct look at the behavior and the sense of moral accountability that he tries to force his audience to reckon with. He doesn't let them off the hook, in a sense. You know, we look at, of course, clerical abuses. That's a big one. What does Dante think about the state of the church? He's a wonderful guide for this moment in time when the papacy is at the height of its power, but also at the height of its abuses in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways, uh, as well as a lot of members of the clergy. And he puts the clergy throughout hell. (laughs) Um, You know, he puts them throughout purgatory, he puts them throughout the paradiso, but he presents an unflinching view of a lot of the sins of the clergy, right? The mm-hmm. ways in which they are not carrying out their mission and their, their calling. So he's wonderful to read for that, right? I mean, just the whole notion yeah. of him coming upon one Pope who's being like stuffed down into this <laughs> abyss <laughs> awaiting the next Pope uh, to come after him is pretty, pretty strong. And, you know, the students love that. So, <laughs> so you know, we always make sure yeah. to talk about moments like that. But, you know, and he also, you can, talk about politics. His conflicting views about republicanism, about empire mm-hmm. are also very vivid. You know, this is somebody who was a, a son of the republic and believed in it until he felt betrayed by it, then ends his life as a supporter of this notion of a Caesar. So there's so many things you can talk about in Dante's work that take you into his world mm. and help you to think about where he's coming from, I think, in, in very complex ways. Despite it being a didactic work, he's not overly didactic, right? There's mm-hmm. something very human and there's a lot of questioning in what he does. Mm-hmm. So then what does Dante then have to tell us about our own time in the 21st century, apart from the Middle Ages? Another big question, of course. <laughs> well, um, I'll, I'll take a crack at that. Okay, you know, okay. Others have, yeah, have some, uh, yeah. some good ideas too. I mean, I think... For me and for my students, when we talk about it, one of the things that we grapple with is what is the point of talking about sin and guilt? You know, because 
I think guilt has gotten a bad rap. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the sense of kind of, you know, what, what are people, you know, why should people weigh themselves down with guilt and burden themselves in this way? And isn't that kind of an old fashioned view of religion? And while I can certainly sympathize with that, I think what Dante was trying to do in his time is to get people to think about personal accountability. Right to really think about themselves and in their relationships, in their work, the way they moved in the world, and to constantly be asking themselves, "Am I doing enough? Am I doing the right thing? Am I doing right by my fellow citizens, by my family, by you know my neighbors, and by God?" Right, mm-hmm. but also about society, and and this is something that I think is so moving about his work is that. It's not just him and God, right? Or him and Virgil. It's him and and a host of people who help him understand his own shortcomings Mm. and who help him understand what he needs to do to improve that sense that I mentioned in my essay, going back to Filippo Giantarati's wonderful lecture, that he presents a very social picture of how in his mind, Christians have to help each other or just Mm -hmm. people have to help each other, right? That, That the only way to attain enlightenment or to move on to your divine reward is you have to rely on other people. You have to help other people. Yeah. Uh, and there's something really beautiful about that, right? Yeah, that, there, that there he, is, yeah. Yeah, he's, he presents human frailty in a very poignant way. Now, you make the statement that nobody in the comedy gets into heaven on their own, or that was probably Filippo's statement, yeah. but you quote him there, but they're quite true. It's really interesting. You also mentioned that purgatory seems to be in the comedy a kind of a place of cultural and religious mediation. I'm especially thinking of Islam in here, but interesting statement anyway. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just the, the whole notion, right? Not, not all Christians accept the idea of purgatory, yeah. you know, and this is something that's kind of a, a later invention in a lot of ways, but that is just interesting, the notion that there's a place that what sets it apart from hell is that it's for people who have a recognition of their sins, Mm -hmm. people who have even just a moment of contrition, a moment of repentance. That is what matters, not whether or not you get to confession, not whether or not you get to work off these sins, but whether or not you can admit the ways in which you failed and you could recognize it. So you know, I mean, to bring it up to today's world, someone like Donald Trump would never be in purgatory, right? No. <laughs> he just doesn't seem capable no. of, of examining himself and ever saying he was wrong. But that notion of self-examination and improvement, you know, that it's a hopeful message, yeah. right? That, that people can continue to grow and, and improve. Yeah. Intentionality too. Good intentions yeah. weigh a lot. So anybody else want to chime in on what Dante might have to say about the 20th century? What relevance does Dante have in the 20th century? If, if I may add something to, to the ethical dimension, something that I find particularly interesting, at least it appeals to me and it appealed to me the first time I was reading the Commedia in high school. And I feel like students react to that as well, is that there is no sugarcoating in Dante. Um, (laughs) He is very human and humane, most of the times at least, but he's also capable and open to, you know, call out his friends and put them in hell. Mm -hmm. And even when this comes at a personal cost for him, so, and the example that Nancy was making about Paolo Francesca, that that passage is wonderful Mm -hmm. in its closing when Dante, who, experienced probably that the, the kind of illicit love is, is not able to come to a solution and mm. he literally faints. And I think that speaks a lot to the fact that even if we are emotionally involved, we should not lose track of what is at stake. Mm-hmm. And I think that students, at least in terms of a, of a moral question, ethical question, react to that. And the other thing is that, again, as we all know, 
the committee is, is about everything. So it, it's about love, it's about politics, it's about philosophy, it's about the dogma of incarnation, it's about astronomical issues that at that time were very intricate and very debated, very much debated. And so that there is room for everybody. And especially in a world where maybe poetry has become a hobby for a very selected few and the, the mm. typically indulge in self reflection it becomes very much a 360 commitment to this world and the other world at the same time because the two are not that separate in a medieval from a medieval standpoint yeah fascinating my own advisor Joan Ferrante was uh, often pointing out to us that women in the divine comedy including Beatrice and the Virgin Mary play both an active and a symbolic role in salvation as part of this wider humanity. They guide in the upward journey of the soul every step of the way through love and prayer, through criticism, through example. So maybe on some level, Dante has a proto-feminist tendency that might have appealed actually to our students back in 1921 and maybe still does. So anybody have thoughts about Dante as a feminist possibly? or proto-feminist? I think there was bravery in Dante, and as usual, he's very much unconventional, and this is a point that I would say American critics have brought up, maybe more so than Italians, I should say, Linda mm -hmm. Barolini being one of them. Women in the Commedia are literal source of moral salvation. In Canto II, so if you think of the first Canto of the Inferno as Paramio to, to the entire work, well, Canto II is basically Canto I of the Inferno, we could say. Mm -hmm. Well, in that passage, we have three women, the Virgin Mary, St. Lucia, and Beatrice that come to rescue Dante. So they are, the starting point of the journey is marked in, in the female gender. And the last vision before looking into God is, you know, by means of the Virgin Mary, who is mm. there to mediate before, between them. And there are so many female figures in the Commedia that bespeak the courage of Dante. You know, we... In Paradiso 9, we have prostitutes. Mm. We have two prostitutes. Well, one a lustful woman is, is described, and the other is actually a biblical prostitute of the Hebrew Bible, so the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So Dante really goes beyond the, the expectations and uh, goes against what we would think from the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. And maybe this is something that we still have to discover or to bring to the attention of our students, because it's not an age of men, we have gigantic female intellectuals at the time that deserve our attention and that Dante himself, you know, and Dante himself proves this in his mm -hmm. communion. Yeah. yeah, if I could just add very quickly, I, you know, one of the things that's so fascinating in, in the purgatory is the way that Dante and, and Beatrice flip gender roles, right? She becomes very strong. She puts him in his place multiple times. She pushes him. She supports him. She goads him. And he is sort of occupying this more gendered feminine space at times. I think it's fascinating that he's able to imagine himself in that role, that he puts uh, himself in that role and he puts her in that role. I think speaks a lot for his courage, as, as Alberto says. Over the years, this special interest in Dante at Vassar has helped acquisitions useful to students studying Dante and his time, both in the library and in the art center. So let's start by asking Ron Patkus to lead us through a kind of ekphrastic tour of the Thompson Library book exhibit that he curated. So for starters, Ron, we have two limited edition facsimiles of manuscript editions of the comedy. Yeah, the exhibit, I should say, has 10 selections. 
which is just a small portion of wider holdings in special collections and in the library for that matter. So we were trying to determine which books we would choose. And we decided also to take a, a chronological presentation. So we don't have, unfortunately, any original Dante manuscripts, you know, from the medieval or Renaissance period. But we do have a number of facsimiles, uh, many cases, limited edition facsimiles of important Dante manuscripts. And these can be very helpful in a teaching setting because a student may not be able to fly to Florence <laughs> to look at an example, but a facsimile can still be useful, again, in teaching and learning. So we've acquired a number of these. We use them in a number of classes, including the course I'm teaching right now called Detectives in the Archives. And I, I wanted to be sure that we started there. Since Dante died in 1321, we're definitely in the manuscript period. And there's a very interesting history about the early manuscripts of his works that were produced. Mm -hmm. We put on display two facsimiles of manuscripts. The first one is the famous Codex Trivuziano. This is an important manuscript from very early on. They think it dates to around the late 1330s mm -hmm. uh, in Florence. And it actually represents a group of manuscripts called the Dante del Cento group because they all are traced to the same scriptorium. So I had to start there. It's a very famous manuscript. That first item in the exhibit is also interesting because uh, it has an interesting Vassar tie, which is that it was given to Vassar by the Italians of the United States of America on the 600th anniversary oh. of Dante's death in 1921, there are little notes appended on the inside of the book attesting to that fact. So there's a wonderful connection there from 100 years ago. Yeah. We have another later facsimile on view, which is from the later 1300s. That's called the Dante Estense manuscript, which the original resides in Modena. It's very different from the other facsimile, and that's important to show because mm -hmm. manuscripts are changing and they're different even uh, decades apart. Mm -hmm. And this one is formatted very differently and illustrated very differently. So we wanted to show at least two examples of those early books produced by hand relating to Dante. I'm struck sometimes at how useful facsimiles are. You pulled out the wonderful Chaucer facsimile when I was teaching the Canterbury Tales there. It was the- um, Oh, that was the Ellesmere Chaucer. The Ellesmere Chaucer, yeah. So we could hand around specific pages with the portraits of the pilgrims. It was really wonderful. So they are wonderful teaching tools. They may be reproduction in a kind of virtual reality, but even so, they're-, they're It's a reproduction. But another thing I would say is that a facsimile can also be handled you know, just like an original manuscript can be handled. The alternative is just to, to have a PowerPoint and shuffle through a bunch of flat images on a screen. Yeah. And that can be helpful. But if, if you can actually handle a facsimile and at least in some way walk through it as you would any book, that to me is even a little bit closer to what the original might be. So I agree, they can often be very useful. Yeah, my students were very impressed. I could see just watching them. So we also, apart from the facsimiles, have famous editions of the text. Some of them are incunables, incunabula, 
from the first hundred years of printing. And we actually have these in hand. These are in fact similes, yes? Indeed. So, you know, printing begins in the middle of the 15th century with Gutenberg, but the first printing of Dante is from 1472. Again, we don't have a copy of that, but there were several Dante editions that appeared in the 15th century. And we actually have two. We have one from 1484 and we have one from 1491. Mm. Because of space limitations, I wasn't able to put both in the exhibition, but I did put one. And the one I chose was the later one, the one from 1491. This is a large folio volume, and it's especially well, well known for including around the text, the commentary of Cristoforo Landino, mm -hmm. who was a, a Renaissance humanist uh, who championed vernacular works in Italian. This book is also noteworthy for having many woodcut illustrations, and so it's it's got a lot going for it in showing what books in that early period, the uh, period of Incunabula looked like and how people were negotiating texts of Dante with illustrations and commentary around them in some cases. Mm -hmm. I was happy to, to show that one. Yeah, the illustrations are really quite wonderful in these early works. Not just the illustrations, though, the typography is wonderful also, Indeed. because this is, we're coming out of the Middle Ages into the, the Renaissance in Italy, where modern typeface is being designed to begin with, and they're wonderful typefaces. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Roman fonts are used in this one, as you would expect, but the text of Dante is slightly larger than the surrounding commentary, because oh. the commentary is so long, it, it had to be smaller. Yeah. That I, I should have said one of the thing I wanted to be mentioned, Tom, is uh, this, you know, many of these books have interesting Vaster connections. Mm -hmm. And the incunable that we put on view was actually given to Vassar by Francis Fitz Randolph, who was a longtime trustee of the college, after whom the reading room in special collections is named. Oh. It's called the Francis Fitz Randolph reading room. And we actually have a painting of him that hangs in our reading room. It is very interesting some way the way uh, institutional history ties into these individual yes. uh, uh, titles. So, uh, so you also have, apart from the, uh, the very early printed books, you have just wonderful early modern examples in the exhibit. And I wonder if you could talk about those, you know, the early editions that have their own histories and tell about the history of the college. So we have two examples in the exhibit from the 16th century. Mm -hmm. We don't have any from the 17th century. Actually, the last printing of Dante in the 17th century was in 1629. And for the rest of the century, his works were not printed. You know, because we're in a different time period, the rise of the Enlightenment and Dante's works simply were of less interest. Yeah. Um, he reappears, though, in the 18th century. And we do have an example from the 18th century, which is a printing by the famous publisher and typographer and printer Bodoni, uh -huh. after whom the typeface is named. Mm -hmm. So the fact that we don't have any from the 17th century is actually reflective of what was happening in printing. Mm -hmm. But I love our 16th century examples. We show one from 1544 and one from 1578. These two books are interesting in their own ways. Again, for Vassar ties that they have by who they were donated by important alums. Mm -hmm. And both of those 16th century books, the first one has a number of woodcuts. 
and there's an example on the website. Mm -hmm. The second one has a very impressive title page with a, a portrait of Dante. So that's worth, worth looking at as well. The Bodoni is a favorite of mine, actually. There are no illustrations, of course, in the Bodoni, but it's a powerhouse of typography, as yeah, you were yeah. talking about earlier. It's this yeah. very stark, but elegant and beautiful font. Some people don't like Bodoni's types, mm. but I think they have a beauty unto themselves. And he was not interested in illustrations. He just wanted to produce a, a typographically beautiful book. So there's large margins and then again, the, the focus on the, the text. Our copy of the Bodoni is especially interesting because it's in its original binding uh -huh. from the late 1700s. And there's three volumes, and it's really a treat to behold those. Yeah, it is. My eye was drawn right to them, despite all the illustrations and, and you know, yeah. the other text that you have out on the side. But, you know, there's something about it. Is it the title page that you're doing? Yes. You the, yeah, the title page. Just wonderful. The title page yeah. is on the website. So yeah. uh, I yeah. do encourage yeah. people to at least look at that. Pushing into the 19th century, we also have on display a lavish 19th century edition illustrated by Gustave Doré, a, a rather famous edition of Dante's comedy, yes? Yes. So the background, of course, is that in the 19th century, where, you know, we have the Industrial Revolution, we have the beginning of the machine age of printing, and therefore many, many more books are starting to appear than could have appeared in the hand press era, the so-called hand press era. Mm -hmm. So the context is that many, many more books, including of Dante, are appearing. But even in that context, there were some books that were produced in limited editions as well. And this one that we have of Doré was actually published by the, the famous French publishers Hachette, but it was in a limited edition of only 100 copies. And Vassar has number 25. And the illustrations by Doré, as you mentioned as you would mention as an art librarian, yeah. are just iconic. Yeah. And they were very influential both at their time and even today, many of the, if you just do a Google search on the internet, you're going to come up with a lot of these illustrations from Doré because they really have influenced the culture in a lot of ways. And I'm sad that in the exhibition case, we could only include one illustration, but of, of course there are many more yeah. and they're really fun to look at that's the problem with a book exhibit you can only have one opening yeah, at a time. <laughs> so, indeed yeah. that copy by the way the doré here's another vassar connection was given to us by i don't know if you ever heard of herbert claiborne pell who had a long career in new york politics first as a united states representative later as a diplomat but from 1945 he lived not far from the college in hopewell junction and he donated a number of books to the library and loaned some for exhibitions. We have a number of other books, but he gave us this one, this, this limited edition of Dante. It was his son who the famous Pell Grants are named after. You know, I remember when I was in college, I got a Pell Grant. And that was his son who was also in politics. Same family. Uh, really interesting. So moving into the 20th century now, the fine press world took an interest in publishing beautiful editions of the comedy, didn't they? And, and they also were known for their typography. And, Absolutely. Yeah. And so see the fine presses, they're reacting against a lot of the printing from the 19th century. Instead of large scale 
productions for the masses, they wanted to, you know, go back to fine bookmaking. Mm -hmm. And a number of them printed the classics, including Dante. And we have several of these in special collections. Again, I wish I had more room to show more examples, but for instance, presses like the Nonsuch Press in London or the Officina Bodoni, which was operated by Martersteig in Verona. They printed an edition of, for the limited editions club. I, those are not in the exhibit, but two others are, again, because of their Vassar connections. One is a printing by the Grabhorn Press. Um, the Grabhorn Press was in San Francisco. And the other one was printed by the Steinauer Press, which operates today, still operates in northeastern Vermont. The reason why I included these two is that the first one by the Grabhorn Press has a translation by Mary Prentice Lilly, mm -hmm. and she was a Vassar graduate. Uh -huh. And so here's a Vassar graduate from middle of the 20th century who translated the entire Divine Comedy. She had gotten interested in Dante while she was a student, mm -hmm. and she later went on and did this entire translation, and it was printed by one of the key fine presses of yeah. the age. Yeah. Then this other book printed by the Steinauer Press was a translation by Clara Stillman Reed, another Vassar grad. Uh -huh. She reworked, her translation was based on that of, of another person that she had been working with. Mm -hmm. But the point is here are two Vassar grads from mid-century who are translating the entire work of Dante yeah influenced by their training at Vassar, but kept that through their lives. Yeah. And as adult women were producing these books, which were printed by key presses of the time. I, I just thought that that was remarkable. Yeah, it is. I wonder if they'd been students of Bruno Roselli in, in those years, who uh, was here, I think, into the late 30s. I'd have to to yeah. research the specifics. I yeah. think he was only here into the mid-30s, I think yeah. 20s to mid-30s. Yeah. Last but not least, we have a new publication, somewhat new, uh, by uh, Thorn Willow Press that's really wonderfully illustrated. You know, it's a sort of grand finale in the, uh, in the exhibit case. Yes. Uh, rather lavish, too. It's a large format book, yes. Um, yes. As you know, uh, Vassar serves as the official repository for the works of the Thorn Willow Press, which is located in Newburgh, New York, not too far from us. I wrote a book about them um, a few years ago, if anyone is interested. But in 2018, they produced an edition of the Inferno, mm -hmm. which featured art and handwriting by George Cochran, mm -hmm. and a translation by Anthony Esselin. So it, literally, the text was written out by hand by Cochran, and he also produced these illustrations. So even though the book is printed, it does have a feel of handwriting, mm -hmm. which in a way calls us back to the, this a is the last book in yeah. the, the exhibit, and it calls us back to the very first books in the exhibit, which are written by hand. Although now, of course, it's for a modern age, yeah. and it's really a wonderful bookend. And uh, an interesting example on its, on its own. There too, I picked one image that I, or one opening of the book that I really liked. I wish we could have shown more. 
Yeah, so wonderful exhibit, really a centerpiece of this whole three exhibit endeavor that we've done to celebrate the 700th anniversary of Dante's death. So yes. So anyway, thanks, Ron, for running us. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So Elizabeth, the art collection in the Loeb Center has a lot to offer students studying the works of Dante, doesn't it? And I wonder if you could talk about the exhibition that's on view now in, in the Spotlight Gallery. Sure. For those of you that haven't been to the Lobe recently, the Spotlight is a relatively new idea right in our entry gallery. Calling it an exhibition is a little bit of a misnomer. Yeah. It's sort of a capsule exhibition, a mini exhibition. Yeah. So we show a handful of works right as visitors walk in. And the idea behind the space is to discuss collaborations that we're doing with other entities. So it could be in some of their earlier incarnations, it was the outside community, broader Hudson Valley. Or in this case, I thought it was a perfect instance to highlight collaborations that we're doing with campus partners, namely all of you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so when Ron asked me to contribute to his catalog mm -hmm. and thinking about how art could be connected to Dante Abbasar, I cast a very wide net and I included early Italian paintings and photographs. But I thought in the end for this little mini exhibition that wouldn't work as well visually, we have this beautiful suite of Michael Mazur prints mm -hmm. illustrating Dante's Inferno. And I thought just putting a few of those up could really create a meditative experience and just really pare it down to a few examples of that. And then one 19th century portrait of, of Dante himself. Yeah, wonderful. You're right. It is a meditative experience. It reminds me of what goes on when you gaze at images in a book of hours. It's not textuality quite, it's something else, but really glad you have those Mazur prints on display and really wonderful selection of them also. And then you also have a portrait of Dante by Giuseppe Bossi. Yes. So it's a 19th century portrait, but it mm -hmm. still has a lot that sort of long nose and the creased yeah. face and a lot of the features that are associated with Dante. And I was actually just thinking when I read your question about which American authors and poets we can even picture right now. And I yeah. came up with like Stephen King and Amanda Gorman. <laughs> I don't know. It's sort of, That's funny. I, yeah. I think there's something to be said for if you are a writer and pre-photography, pre-television to have your visage, how accurate it was. Mm -hmm. I'll leave that to the Italians yeah. to parse the yeah. attributed to Giotto and the death mask and so forth. But nonetheless, you see it and you recognize him. Yeah. And yeah. Um, the exhibition at the at the Met right now of Medici portraits, we see those examples, not from the 1300s, but the Botticelli and the Bronzino. And um, you can really see how it gets sort of codified and even into the 19th century. Yeah. So there's wonderful visual material in all three of these exhibits, the book materials that we have and the works of art. I wonder if any of you have any parting thoughts that we didn't really talk about that I hadn't asked questions about before we wrap things up. I'll just say, I think part of this project was really a testimony to Ron Patkis's skill at being a leader, but a friend and knowing what's happening in different parts of campus and bringing us all together. And um, it's really, I think, a labor of love on his part. I'm really yeah. flattered that he and all of you got me involved because I've always loved Dante and I haven't really had that much time to be involved with the Italian department or Dante on campus yet. yet. No, yes. I am now. I am now. Um, we pulled you back in. You guys <laughs> me back up this year. Um, but last semester in the spring when Ron mentioned that this was happening, I was really excited and he was very he was really enthusiastic about getting me involved with it. So I'm really happy that I could do that. You know, I enjoyed working with the team. It was yeah. definitely a team effort, colleagues across campus in different places, not to mention this involving the students. 
I really think it was a great effort. And we had people interested beyond those who uh, were writing an essay or something Mm -hmm. from various departments. So I really enjoyed working with everyone. Yeah, I also wanted to say thank you to all of you, because it was really an opportunity for me to dive into the history of the Italian department, which I had heard about several Parts of it I'd heard about, but once I started looking at the timeline, I I really understood to what degree Dante at Vassar is is an integral part of Italian at Vassar Mm -hmm. and of teaching Italian in general in the United States. And then just this year, because of Emma being in Italy in the summer mm-hmm. and, and writing to me from Italy saying, I'm going to Ravenna. And I'm like, you're going to Ravenna? So the idea of a Dante pilgrimage happening exactly 100 years oh. afterwards. And then Emma wrote to me about the trip on the Dante train, which they created especially this year to celebrate the 700th anniversary. Mm-hmm. And of course, all of Italy and, and the rest of the world are celebrating the anniversary in various ways. And so then I thought it was a great opportunity to bring it all together. But as far as I'm concerned, it's a project that is ongoing because I, I the more I research, like I said, um, the more I want to know about, about the trip and about what happened to all the, the documents or any testimony that we have about that experience from the students. So I was really glad to collaborate with everybody on this project. That's why institutional history is so important because it reminds you of who you are and then you know how to move ahead. Because if you don't know who you are, even in connection with an institution where you go to work every day, you don't really know where you're going or what you're doing. But I agree with that. That was something I just wanted to echo as well as that was one of the questions that you had asked, Tom, is, you know, the institutional history part. And one of the lovely things about doing this project, you know, I'm so so happy to be part of it and, and to work with my colleagues and, and see the wonderful things that we have in our collections, is it really does remind you of the special place that the Middle Ages has for Vassar, that the connection that Vassar has to the Middle Ages, I should say, that, you know, if you look around the campus, you look at the Gothic style of the library, you mm-hmm. look at the Romanesque style of the chapel, Gaudiama Sigatur as being part of convocation, right? This this wonderful medieval Latin song that we still sing, although we didn't do it this year, I think because of COVID, but (laughs) um, you know, we will hopefully do it again in in the spring. But that sense that I think for, you know, going back to what you were saying, Simona, about how Dante has been part of Vassar almost as long as Vassar has been Vassar, that there's a deliberate effort to think about the Middle Ages and think about our connection to it, because this is the time when the universities were created. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is an incredible moment in time. The university was the unique invention of the Middle Ages. There was nothing exactly like it before it came about. And it's one of the most progressive inventions of of the Middle Ages, that it wasn't a top-down kind of thing, that it came out of guilds that were created by students who wanted better organization and rights uh, and um, demanded it, and and of faculty who also unionized, right, who banded together in these guilds. And they shaped the origins of the university. And I think Mm -hmm. that Vassar in its own way, has always tried to echo that, right? To show that it is connected to that sense of universities being about people, 
and also the ways in which Vassar has improved upon that, right? Because Vassar admits women yeah. <laughs> um, and admitted women from, from the beginning in, in ways that the medieval university did not. And we have progressed more and more in time, right? Opening it up to people, you know, of all religions, all classes, right? Um, mm-hmm. All backgrounds. So sort of taking that tradition and improving on it, I think is, is a really interesting way of thinking about it. Yeah. I give two lectures in my freshman writing seminar about medieval education. So just so students know where they are, same thing. They know something about the institutions in the wider sense, what they're doing, you know, what is a lecture and where does it come from? Wonderful. Anyway, I want to really thank you all for spending the time to talk to us today on the Library Cafe. I'm really pleased that we're able to get you on the air and talking about Dante. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Tom, for inviting us. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you very much.